0: This is Here's How, Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast, presented by William Campbell.
1: Thank you for downloading episode 90 of Here's How for the 3rd of September 2019. A no-deal Brexit is spoken of in Ireland as an undiluted disaster. In this podcast, I'll talk to someone who sees it as a bright idea, at least for Britain.
0: Here's How is Ireland's political, social and current affairs podcast. Make your view heard. Just dial 076 603 5060 and tell the world what you're thinking. Your voicemail may be included in the next podcast. You can find tips on recording your contribution and other ways to contact the show at hereshow.ie slash call. Coming up in a few minutes.
2: It is simply a... A smokescreen to try and stop Brexit within the United Kingdom. It what's what's, what's, what's your example internationally? Anything what's your example possible.
1: internationally of the fastest, best done trade deal? The
2: fastest, best done trade deal. Can you, can you give you, I an example of anyone that
1: was done in less than five years? Um, I can, in fact, our rollover deal with South Korea. That's not a rollover deal. Uh, that's, a, not a, that's not a, a trade deal ab
2: it's a rollover of our existing trade arrangements. Literally, signed on the dotted line, trade deal with South Korea.
1: That's coming up shortly. But first, I want to thank all of my donors on Patreon. I really appreciate them all. Patreon is a system that allows people to donate a dollar or two per podcast or per month. That helps me to devote more time to research and to finding interesting guests. If you want to do the same as those donors, there's details on the website and at the end of the show. I don't like knocking other podcasts, particularly other Irish podcasts, but I heard one thing a while back that I've been thinking about and I just have to comment. You'll probably remember the Maria Bailey swing case against the Dean Hotel. The TD sued the hotel because, she claimed, in 2015 she hurt her wrist when she fell off a swing there. It's clear that she had drink taken at the time and was holding drinks in both hands. This was confirmed because the hotel had CCTV footage of the incident. However, Bailey claimed that the hotel was negligent because they didn't provide staff to supervise her drunken antics. Maria Bailey is certainly an idiot, but there are lots of idiots in Ireland, so that's not really worth commenting on. In Bailey's legal submissions, she illustrated her injuries by claiming that she had not been able to run at all for three months after her fall. In fact, she ran a 10k race in less than 54 minutes, a pretty impressive time, less than three weeks after the fall. And in a subsequent interview with Sean O'Rourke on RTE, she claimed that she had only sued to recover 7,000 euros in medical expenses. In fact, she had claimed €20,000 from the hotel. Maria Bailey is certainly a liar, but there are lots of liars in Ireland, and that's not what I'm focusing on in this segment. Getting towards what I am interested in here, Bailey is a liar. Sadly, we expect that of politicians, but sometimes lies have consequences. Bailey lied in the legal submissions she made to take her case, in particular, she exaggerated the extent of her injuries, presuming she had any injuries at all, in the statements she gave, obviously to increase the amount or the chances of her getting a payout. That is a criminal offense. Specifically, that is perverting the course of justice. And that's not some esoteric technical offense either. Let's look at our nearest neighbour, particularly because they have pretty much exactly the same law on their books. Jonathan Aitken, the corrupt British politician, made false statements in an effort to sue the Guardian newspaper and ITV. It's important to note here that the case never went to court, the defence lawyers exposed the lie before it got to that point what he did was he lied in his legal submissions, submissions that he knew were intended to be used in a court case, and that was perverting the course of justice. Aiken went from being a government minister to being sentenced to 18 months in prison in 1995. Geoffrey Archer's lies went further before he got caught. In 1987, he sued the Daily Star for saying he had paid a prostitute for sex. He won half a million pounds sterling, a massive fortune at the time. Years later, people who had given him false alibis recanted, and in 2001, Archer was convicted of perjury as well as perverting the course of justice and sentenced to four years in prison, barely a year after he had been the Conservative Party candidate for Mayor of London. Chris Hune was the Deputy Leader of the Liberal Democrats and a Senior Cabinet Minister in 2011 when his ex-wife told journalists that penalty points for speeding that were put on her driving licence when they were married, in fact, related to when he was driving and should have gone to him, which would have cost him his licence. That seems like small beer compared to the industrial scale penalty point fraud in Ireland, but the British police took it seriously. They charged Huyne with perverting the course of justice. He resigned from Cabinet, he resigned as an MP, he was convicted, and he was sentenced to eight months in jail. He went, more or less directly, from Her Majesty's Government to Her Majesty's prison in Wandsworth. I want to compare those three to the case of Maria Bailey, who, information in the public domain makes clear, committed the same crime. Bailey has not been charged or convicted, and she won't be. She's not even been questioned, let alone arrested. She hasn't lost her seat in the doll, She hasn't been kicked out of Fine Gael, or even the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party, the so-called Losing the Web. But, the poor diddums Leo Varadkar had to show some mark of disapproval, so he removed her as chair of the Oireachtas Housing Committee, because the Irish elite just takes a different attitude to crimes committed by their own. That's where I get to the Irish podcast, the Irish Times podcast, in fact, where Irish Times journalist Pat Leahy asked Irish Times journalist Harry McGee what
3: he thought of the penalty imposed on Bailey by Varadkar. In my view, the punishment that was meted out was uh, wholly proportionate. I just don't go along uh, with the public hue and cry that she uh, should lose her uh, use the whip um, of, Well I think losing the whip is, is a very um, comes after a, a very serious uh, transgression and what happened here was that she found herself in the eye of the storm over two things number one she exaggerated a claim and I think she, she deserved punishment for that She exaggerated the nature of
1: her injuries did she? she? She did Full disclosure I did record an interview with Harry a while back but I didn't put it on the podcast because it just wasn't very good but that statement is gobsmacking. An elected politician commits a serious crime and respected journalists on a major national newspaper are happy to say that losing her little add-on job as chair of an Noctis committee is fitting punishment.
3: Why is that enough punishment? I, I think that you have to look at this um, issue in its totality and you have to look at the kind of the the punishment that's already been meted out to her in the the court of public uh, opinion you know she was held up to national ridicule in the wake of that in a manner that that was her own fault though, of course wasn't it, it? of course it was but you can't uh, discount the impact and personal effect that it had on her and i think that looking at the um situation in its totality looking at the um the ridicule uh, that she has uh, been subjected to uh, looking at the kind of the, I'm using a technical term here, the shit storm that she found herself in over the period of a month, uh, compounded by the fact that her father passed away. Uh, in the meantime, it would have been very easy uh, for Leo Radker uh, to decide to remove the whip for her, from her. It would have been a populist uh, move. It would have um, <clears throat> echoed the kind of the, the public clamour but in my view, I think the action that was taken by the Taoiseach is proportionate.
1: You think the Taoiseach So, basically, because people are angry at her for committing a crime, she shouldn't suffer any real punishment for it. Think about that for a moment. If the public is angry at a criminal because of the crime they committed, then the criminal should escape the punishment for those crimes. A respected Irish journalist sat down in front of a microphone, and I presume hadn't had a stroke that morning, although I can't be sure, and he said a politician who committed a crime should not alone escape prosecution and conviction. She shouldn't even lose her political career because she has to put up with the anger of the public. This segment is not about Maria Bailey, and it's not about Harry McGee either. This segment is about a class of people in Ireland who really don't believe that the law applies to the people they mix with in the same way as it applies to the rest of us. It's not that they think they should be able to get away with it. It's that they believe, they really believe that there is no it that they're getting away with. They genuinely believe that they're right. On this podcast, I've tried to cover a variety of issues, but one theme is to challenge the insulated power structures, and the most frustrating response is not hostility, it's indifference. It's the what-are-you-going-on-about attitude. I've challenged the CSO in manipulating questions to get a desired response on religion. I've challenged RTE on them giving almost unlimited free airtime to the motor lobby in the form of the AA. I've challenged the Department of Communications on giving taxpayer billions to a private broadband provider. And my overriding feeling is that they just don't get it. They really don't see what is wrong with what they're doing. The problem with Ireland is not that a third-rate politician committed a crime. That happens everywhere. The problem almost isn't that she escapes punishment for the crime. And let's remember that the case of Jonathan Aitken is identical to hers. In both cases, false statements were made preparing for a lawsuit that never ended up going to court. He lost his job as a minister, lost his political career, was bankrupted, and served seven months of an 18-month sentence. The real problem is that people, influential people in Ireland think that it's okay that this doesn't happen. They think what we do is normal. We live in a country where a cardinal bullied and threatened rape victims to prevent them from going to the Gardaí. That's bad, but much worse is that the people in power don't see fit to arrest him for questioning, let alone charge and convict him that just wouldn't be good form. We live in a country where we know for a fact that a businessman paid a bribe to a politician to get a radio station license. A high court judge ruled that that happened, but neither the politician nor the businessman were ever charged, they were never questioned, they were never arrested. We live in a country where the Garda computer system ...has a criminal intelligence file for traveller children before they're 10 years old. But I would bet you that none of those crimes that I've listed... ...ever even had a file opened for an investigation. And I would guess that the people responsible for investigating... ...would be outraged at even the suggestion that they were derelict in their duty... They can't imagine leading cardinals, politicians, or businessmen away in handcuffs. It's just not what they do. Prison is for single mothers who can't pay their TV licence. Prison is for drug addicts who snatch a handbag. Like Harry McGee, they think that just the fact that those crimes were exposed is punishment enough in itself. I don't know. Maybe I'm the one who's had a stroke.
0: Do you agree? Do you disagree? If you want your point of view heard, dial 076 603 5060 and leave a contribution for the show. The lines are open 24-7 and you can find tips on how to record a good contribution and other ways to contact the podcast at hereshow.ie slash call.
1: On the line now, I have Harry Todd. Harry is a senior research executive with an organisation called Get Britain Out. That's a pro-Brexit organisation in the UK. He previously worked as a campaign manager for the Conservative Party. He was also previously the national ground campaign manager for an organisation called Leave Means Leave. Are you a hard Brexiteer, Harry? Quite the contrary. I'm a pragmatic Brexiteer. hmm I believe in democracy.
2: 17.5 uh, million people in this country voted to leave, and it would be an absolute travesty if we ignored that vote.
1: And in terms of just so that people in Ireland can place you on the political map, there are some people in the UK. Clearly not one of you who wish to remain in the EU. There are some people who wish to leave the EU and want to have a deal of some degree. And then there are people who are campaigning for a no deal leave. Some people are calling that a hard Brexit. Some people are calling that a WTO Brexit. Where do you fit on that spectrum?
2: Well, Get Britain Out as an organisation. We campaign for a world trade Brexit. Mm Mm-hmm. And that means leaving the European Union without a deal, going to world trade standards, negotiating free trade deals for ourselves all over the, all over the globe and being an independent free trading nation again
1: Okay I want to talk a little bit about that because of course there is the EU and everybody understands what that is but there's also the single market and there are some countries such as Norway and Iceland and Switzerland who are members of the single market there's also perhaps a more outer tier the customs union which includes Turkey. uh, That's all for trading. And then for the movement of people, there's the Schengen Agreement, which Ireland and Britain are not part of, but Norway, Mm -hmm. Iceland and Switzerland are part of. And that means essentially crossing borders without a passport. Are you arguing that Britain should not be a member of the single market and also not be a member of the Customs Union?
2: Yes. By being a member of the single market and the Customs Union... Britain, after leaving the European Union, would become a rules taker with no influence in the decisions made about that market and customs union.
1: Mm-hmm. And, and I think you're, Instead, correct, I think you're be... correct on that because Norway, Iceland and Switzerland, they're all pretty small countries, all put together. They have a population much less than the UK. And they essentially, it used to be a fax, I guess it's an email these days, they get uh, a message as to what the EU has decided for the standards on lawnmower widgets or whatever it is, and they incorporate it into their national law. They don't have much of a choice about that.
2: Yes, yeah, that is exactly the position for, for Norway in these smaller countries, Turkey particularly. They have no influence into what is going on in Brussels. Mm-hmm. They cannot say to them, actually, we want a deal that focuses rather than on tractor widgets, uh, I don't know, farm equipment widgets. hmm And they, they have no influence, none. We don't want to be in that position. We are the fifth largest economy in the world. Mm-hmm we are able to stand on our own two feet and we can go around and we can get deals which benefit the British economy rather than trying to have this generic one-size-fits-all approach that the EU approach trades negotiations with.
1: Okay, I want to look at that a little bit because you mentioned that uh, 17-point-whatever-million people voted to leave. Uh, There was about roughly a 52% majority in favor of leave in the referendum in 2016, I'm not sure that the people who voted Leave were voting for that, because I just want to listen to two people, uh, Daniel Hannan and Nigel Farage, who I'm sure you would agree are uh, very much committed brexiteers daniel Hannan is a, an mep he's one of the few remaining meps for the conservative party nigel farage of course previously the leader of ukip now the leader of the brexit party nobody could question their brexit credentials but this is what daniel hannon was absolutely saying during the is referendum campaign that we would
3: give up our position in the free market in europe i've never heard anyone here suggest that we wouldn't have the same sort of deal that switzerland has or that the channel islands have to repeat absolutely nobody is talking about threatening our place in the single market. Yeah, but we've got you have... two
2: host...
3: And just to listen to a couple of
1: things that Nigel Farage said in Wouldn't the... Wouldn't it be in terrible campaign. if we were like Norway and Switzerland, really? They're rich, they're happy, they're self-governing. It would be ghastly if this country was like Norway. Can you imagine it? Rich, free, catching your own fish. Norway sells 75% of its overseas goods to the European marketplace. It trades with the European marketplace at a premium. It has opted to be a member of the European Economic Area. Uh, Listening to those, Harry, do you think that it's fair to say that the average Leave voter would have understood that the UK would not be staying in the single market in the way that Norway and Iceland and Switzerland do?
2: Well, I don't speak for either Nigel or Daniel. What I can speak to, however, is that the question on that referendum paper was, do you want to remain in the European Union or do you want to leave the European Union? Mm -hmm. This was further defined by both campaigns. Uh, Philip Hammond, who was quite big in the Remain campaign at the time, Mm -hmm. at Chatham House in March 2016. He is directly quoted as saying, let's look for a moment now at the default option, the World Trade Organization rules, which if it were, if it were, if it were we will end up, if we, leave the, if we leave the European Union without a deal agreed, for mm-hmm. anyone who wants to ensure a clean break with the EU, the WTO is the only honest model.
1: But that, that was, this hold on for a second, one that one was the Remain, uh, Harry, 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 that was the Remain campaign. And the one thing about the Remain campaign was that they lost. People didn't believe them. The Leave campaign won, so people believed, at least in a majority, Daniel Hannan, who explicitly said there's no question of leaving the single market, and Nigel Farage, who explicitly said that the future model for Britain would be like no- Norway or Switzerland.
2: And again, I can't speak for either of them. All I can speak to is what was on that ballot paper. Mm-hmm. And what was on that ballot paper was leave or remain. Both sides then spelled out different visions for what that could be. Philip Hammond, as I've just quoted, he said WTO is the only honest model. There were other people at the time. And he said who that, said that said would be a disaster. Thing. He said it's the only honest model. He may have his opinion on whether it's a de- disaster or not. But it was talked about, people heard the arguments for it, and we voted to leave.
1: Okay, well let's move on from that, because I don't want to, you know, that vote is over, I don't want to labour it too much. And to be perfectly honest, Irish people didn't have a vote in that, and that's, you know, they don't have a dog specifically in that fight. But they do have... Uh, an intense interest in trade with the UK. And I'm looking at your website and you have a list of uh, myths, you say, uh, EU facts and myths. And it says myth number one, Brexit would damage trade with our European neighbours. And then you have truth, British businesses do not need the EU to trade. Which is it that the trade would not be damaged or it would not be needed?
2: Uh, it's not saying that Britain doesn't, you know, want to have that trade. It's saying that we don't need the EU re- rules in order to trade.
1: Okay.
2: Uh, moving outside the trading bloc will not stop us trading into the EU. It just changes the terms on which we trade into the EU. Mhm. And that's nothing to be afraid of.
1: Okay. Well, let me, let me let me g- let me give you let me give trade, you then, Harry Harry. Let me give you then the example of dairy farmers in Northern Ireland and the milk industry on the island of Ireland, North and South, is highly integrated. About a third of the milk that is produced in Northern Ireland is brought as raw milk to the South for further processing. Some of that is then finished into finished products like baby milk or cheeses or butter and so forth. Some of that is then put into intermediary products like whey powder, which is sent to other factories, sometimes elsewhere in Ireland, sometimes in GB for further processing. If the UK leaves the EU without a deal on the, at the end of October, There will be a 19 pence sterling, a a 22 cent tariff on every litre of milk that leaves Northern Ireland and comes into the Republic. At a stroke, the entire Northern Ireland dairy industry will be wiped out.
2: I I don't agree with the assessment that it will be wiped out. A third of their market disappears. Three and a half years now. To prepare for a no-deal scenario—that's been the, the legal default since we voted to leave—and if you look at the, ah, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Just a couple report. of weeks ago,
1: just a couple of weeks ago, the Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, said that the chance of a a no-deal exit was a million to one. Mhm. So Northern Ireland dairy farmers could well have said that. Well, the chance of us being wiped out is a million to one. That seems like an awful lot higher chance now.
2: Uh, Boris has gone over. He's he's begun in in good form to to negotiate changes to the withdrawal agreement. Mm-hmm. And as far as I'm aware, the the plan is for him to to leave with a good deal. Mm-hmm. But that requires goodwill on both
1: sides. But 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 the, 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 you know hold on hold the on the, the EU can't change WTO rules, and the WTO rules are crystal clear. The tariff for third country uh, milk products is. 22 cents per litre. That's an enormous tariff. It makes the importation of milk from outside the EU into the EU essentially completely economic. What are you offering to Northern Ireland dairy farmers that are going to be wiped out? They're going to be put out of business pretty much instantly.
2: Well, the state, without the EU intervention, will be able to support Northern, Northern Irish dairy farmers using some of the money we recoup now that we're not paying our membership to use to the European mm-hmm. Union. But more than that, actually, there's something that the EU and the UK can do together, and mm-hmm. that's agree a free trade agreement. We do not need to join the single market to do that. This is what we should have been negotiating for the last three and a half years. How as long as do you think that'll to take to complete?
1: Which, sorry, what was that? How long do you think that'll take to complete? It could be completed today.
2: Under Article 24, I believe it is, of the WTO tariffs, we could agree a working principle trade agreement that retains the current benefits.
1: No, that's complete nonsense. That's that's something that Boris Johnson tried on with Andrew Neil, and Andrew Neil slapped him down uh, about as hard as you could be slapped. That's nonsense. That can only be done when a future agreement has already been agreed. It might be possible, for instance, uh, as we come out, to agree under GATT 24, paragraph 5B, that both sides agree to a standstill, a protraction of their existing yeah. uh, zero tariff, zero quota arrangements, yes. to decide whether so they want how to. How would you handle. You talk
3: that. about Article 5B in uh, GATT 24.
1: Article 24, get the What's detail right. Five, get the yeah. detail right, Andrew. It's how, article 24, paragraph 5B. And how would you handle
3: uh, paragraph 5C?
1: I would, res- I would confide entirely in paragraph 5b, because that is... So
3: how would you get round what's
1: in 5c? I would confide entirely in paragraph 5b, which is Do you know what's enough for our purposes. No. 5c
3: says you don't just need the EU's approval, you need to agree with the EU uh, the shape of a future yes. trade agreement and a timetable to get into it.
1: The articles of it can be implemented in advance, but that's only when a future deal has already been agreed, which it clearly cannot happen before October. Trade deals take many years and often decades to complete.
2: Well, the way the EU performs them, yes, but actually businessmen make deals in a single day. I don't see why governments wouldn't be able to do the same, especially when our economies have been so intertwined over
1: the, over the period of us being in the European Union. Do you have no sympathy for the position that the reason it's not being done is because it can't be done?
2: I have no sympathy for that position because I believe that it, it is simply a, a smokescreen to try and stop Brexit within the United Kingdom. What, what's what's, what's your example internationally? Anything what's your example possible.
1: internationally of the fastest, best done trade deal? The
2: fastest, best, and trade deal. I'll can you, can you give you, an example of anyone that
1: was done in less than five years? Um, I can. In fact, our rollover deal with South Korea. That's not a rollover deal. Uh, that's a, not a. Uh, that's not a trade deal ab It's
2: a rollover of our existing trade arrangements. Literally, signed on the
1: dotted line. Trade deal with South Korea. Uh, sure, but that's not something that can happen with the EU. The EU cannot offer preferential terms to the UK compared to other third countries. Clearly, the EU, if they is it, for example, zero-rated milk as tariffs for the UK would have to do that for every country in the world, and it would be likely to be flooded with cheap milk, for example, from Belarus or milk products from New Zealand. That's not something that's going to happen. What do you say to the dairy farmers in Northern Ireland and the dairy workers in the various factories in the Republic, both of whom are going to be wiped out by the 1st of November?
2: Well it comes back to the purpose of the EU doesn't it? Uh, the EU is a protectionist club when it comes to trade rules, trying to protect these these industries that they have deemed to be important. Actually, I'm a free marketeer. I believe that you know competition is not a bad thing. being able to get milk from Belarus or Indonesia or Australia is not going to hurt the economies of our countries. It's going to help them in the long run. It's going to force them to be more competitive. Okay, Paul, hold hold that idea. And
1: I, I actually agree with you on that idea. I think that in general competition is a good idea. But the reason that trade deals take years to negotiate is because it's essentially a game of Jenga of removing very intricate interlocking dependencies whereby, yeah, sure. If we could import cheap milk from Belarus, that might be a competition and a benefit. But Belarus, we will want them to remove protections from their economy so that we can sell our products there. Now, what the UK is suggesting is that they will just remove all tariffs on everything, which is fine that they're entitled to do that. But that leaves them with very, very little negotiating power to ask third countries to reciprocate.
2: I would say, actually, it says we're open for business. We're willing to work with countries around the world and be that free trading
1: power that we once were. Yeah, sure. But free trade in one direction. And again, I'm not British. The British are absolutely entitled to do that if they so wish. That's to say, to have zero tariffs on outside products coming into Britain but that doesn't mean that there will be zero tariffs on products leaving Britain, going into other countries, and uh, that seems to me that all of British exporters will get no benefit at all, and all of British internal producers will be wiped out by uh, cheap competition.
2: Again, I, I don't speak for the government. I speak for myself and Get Britain Out. We mm-hmm. uh, believe in free trade. The market will provide on this.
1: Uh, that sounds like a very one-sided free market, but I just want to look at a couple of other things. You say here, uh, myth number 10, planes will not be able to fly to and from the continent and the UK. And I'm not sure, that I think that might be a straw man. Nobody's ever said that planes would not be able to go between the UK and the continent. But British, the Open Skies Agreement within the EU will mean that British airlines will be able to fly to and from the UK but they won't be able to go from one european destination to another that's correct isn't it
2: it is but most british air flights are point to point anyway without too much inter- interchange mm-hmm. uh, it it affects a very small number of flights which can be rerouted and diverted
1: well well actually technically the ryanair currently is designated a British airline because uh, of the number of British shareholders it has. And they've proposed that they will do a share buyback from their British shareholders in order to be designated an EU airline. But Ryanair's whole business model, and they're the fastest expanding airline probably in the world, is to cover the whole of Europe, and they do flights from Slovenia to Bratislava, and they do flights from Poland to Greece. British airlines are going to be able to fly in and out of Britain, and that's it, isn't it?
2: Well, as you've just said, Ryanair, which is is a fantastic company, have taken measures to protect themselves, which is what all companies should be doing. Two and a half years ago, if I was a, a CEO of a big company, I would have set up a no-deal Brexit task force and I would have all my preparation in place. Obviously, Ryanair has done that.
1: And, and you're relaxed about the fact that no British companies will be able to compete in that market?
2: Again, most British flights are
1: point-to-point. Okay. Um, one other thing I see here, it says myth number 11, and there will be queues of trucks at Dover if we leave the customs Union. Do you think that there will be... No friction whatsoever uh, if you introduce tariffs, if tariffs are introduced on all products going from Britain to the continent and to Ireland.
2: Uh, Grant Shapps MP, who's now a minister in the government dealing Mm. with this precise situation, just the other day came out and said, we are in an advanced state of preparation for this. While he can't guarantee there will be no queues, Queues will be kept to a minimum, and they've made arrangements to do the customs checks away from the border so that there aren't huge backlogs of trucks or driving down the M3, I think it is. Mm -hmm. Um, So we are prepared for this. We will be ready on the 31st to ensure that there is as frictionless trade as possible.
1: Okay. And it says here, uh, custom checks uh, are more streamlined than ever, which can be done electronically. Just regarding, because we're talking mostly to Irish listeners, regarding Ireland, and there's been talks of, uh, as you have in your website, streamlined checks that can be done electronically, and uh, trusted trader schemes, and uh, number plate recognition schemes, and so forth. And that's all well and good. But that's not acceptable to Ireland, because that essentially means that an entire customs regime will be more technologically advanced and less difficult to manage. People in Ireland aren't happy with that. What they want is no customs regime between the two parts of Ireland. Hundreds of thousands of people cross the border every day. Tens of thousands of businesses trade across the border every day and have no experience of trading to different customs territories. That's an enormous uh, headache and likely to drive an awful lot of uh, businesses out of business. Well, just
2: before the 29th of March, the the Irish government published its no-deal planning document. Mm -hmm. In there, there was not one extra euro allocated to building border posts and customs checkpoints. The UK, with Boris Johnson as prime minister, just a couple of weeks, just the weekend gone, in fact Mm – Boris Johnson stood up and said, we will not be building any customs infrastructure, any border checkpoints. Yeah, but I, that's that's Who's of no to interest to people. That's
1: not the issue. That's not the issue for people in Ireland. Yeah, I mean, that sounds almost like they're making a concession. The issue in Ireland is that, regardless of whether it's at the border or not, it's not acceptable for somebody, let's say, a farmer in County Fermanagh, to have to fill in, be it online or on his phone, or at the border, customs documents or declarations if he wants to sell a few cows to his neighbour in County Cavan.
2: Well, if you have a look at the Alternative Arrangements Commission report, what they've proposed is a multi-tier trusted trader scheme. It's completely unacceptable. Completely unacceptable. With exceptions for the smallest companies, so they don't have to fill them in at all. So that farmer who wants to sell a couple of cabbages to his neighbour, he'd be able to do that without having to fill in a single form.
1: Okay, I'm looking at one story in The Guardian that was obviously a leak from the Theresa May government a couple of years back. And the, they were obviously flying a kite and they said that um, people, this is people, not products, would be able to travel freely between the North and the Republic as long as they registered in advance. Have you any idea of how tone-deaf that sounds? How do you think people would, be, would react in the UK if they were told that they would be allowed to travel freely between Devon and Cornwall as long as they registered with the French government?
2: I mean, I'm told that if I go to an airport and try and get in a flight, I can register online earlier and not have any faff at the airport itself. It's a concept which has been tried and tested
1: that actually you do need to register in order to do certain things. Can you understand that people along the border means going for a cup of tea in their neighbour's house? Can you understand how tone deaf it is that you need to register with the British government in order to do that in Ireland?
2: I can imagine that it seems quite callous, but the reality is it's a normal everyday process that borders all
1: around the world. Okay. Uh, I'll move on to one other thing that you said here. It's on your myths page. It says, Myth 12, goods will be held up if they don't meet EU rules. Uh, Europhiles claim that the need for products to comply with EU rules will hold up movements of goods, as well as maintain the same high standards. Truth, there will likely be mutual recognition of standards, as with the non-EU countries. That's not going to be true if there's no deal, is there?
2: Oh, well, under the under the Act taking the United Kingdom out of the European Union, mm-hmm. European law on the 31st of October will be copy-pasted into British law. So what's the point of Brexit? So the standards will be exactly the same. So so what's the point of Brexit then? In many then? respects, Britain has higher standards than the European Union. No,
1: but hang on, hang on, hang on. What's the point of Brexit if you're doing that?
2: Well, that was Theresa May's design. It allows Britain to then go through those European Union regulations mm-hmm. at a pace of our own, cutting, them, cutting out those that do not work for our economy, that do not work for our people.
1: So then there will be no mutual recognition?
2: Again, in many regards, we could have higher standards. It doesn't mean lower standards. It doesn't mean anything. It means we get to
1: choose. So so what you're saying is that all of those um, terrible uh, bureaucratic rules from Brussels will be made stricter and more detailed and more arduous?
2: As I said, Britain has in many regards higher standards already than a lot of European regulations. Take the humble power plug. The British plug is one of the the best plug designs in the world, and yet this is not followed on the
1: continent. Uh, Okay, okay, but but then you've just undermined the entire rationale for Brexit. If you're saying that the standards in the UK are already higher, how how is it in some way arduous to meet uh, the European standards?
2: Well, the rationale for Brexit is that our elected parliament should be the ones making those decisions.
1: And to, you said that you then will transpose all of the European law into UK law and then have time to go through it issue by issue, as I understand what you're saying. That is the and, default state, yeah. Yeah. And, and then be able to do that. Can you give me your Number one change, the number one change to the law that you would like to make, that you can't make now because of European regulations, but that you would like to see made once the 1st of November comes?
2: Well, I I can indeed. Uh, Cutting VAT, for example. Right now, we are unable to cut VAT to a sufficient level. Uh, it makes us less competitive around the world. Uh, we can't take VAT, VAT doesn't off apply to exports like female sanitary products.
1: Hang on, hang on. VAT doesn't apply we to want exports. To be able to do that. How does that make exports uncompetitive? VAT doesn't apply to exports.
2: Oh, sorry, I misspoke. I, I meant consumer consumer goods. It, it'll make them cheaper for British people.
1: And the the UK has at various times put up and down VAT rates. Are you saying that they are not now allowed to do that?
2: Right now, you have to keep your VAT. I believe it's above 17%, Mm -hmm. which makes, you know, goods more expensive for British people. We want our democratically elected parliament to have the ability to reduce that if they think it's necessary.
1: Okay. So, uh, VAT, can you give me any other examples of items to be done on the 2nd of November or the 3rd of November changes that you'd like to see that are currently impossible?
2: I mean, personally, yeah. uh, that's the big one for me. And no others? Again, personally, that's that's my big one. Sure, sure, but
1: there must be more than one.
2: Well, I would like to be able to sell bananas that aren't of certain gradients, for example.
1: Oh, come on, surely you're not going with that myth.
2: <laughs> it's not a myth. It's complete it is, nonsense. It, it was European made up by, Jar-
1: by Boris Johnson when he was working for the Telegraph in, in Brussels. It's absolute nonsense.
2: Again, it's not absolute nonsense. But okay, let's talk about the fact that the EU has regulations around when and when and when it isn't acceptable to eat horse meat. I'd rather do without them. Thank you.
1: Okay. Can, can you see there that it may or may not happen that Britain will have the funds to be able to cut its VAT rate? Borscht meat is a relatively minority dietary item in the UK. And uh, the bananas example you gave is uh, just false. And I'll put a link for that in the, in the notes for this uh, website. But do you not see there that you seem to be running out of reasons pretty quickly?
2: Again, I'm talking about my personal reasons. I'm not running out of arguments. It's just they're what I believe.
1: Okay. And finally, uh, Harry, to the people in Ireland who are in a position where they see potential damage to the Irish economy, what would you say to Irish people who are perhaps, for example, working in a creamery where they will no longer be able to access... Uh, supplies of raw milk from Northern Ireland. Uh, what do you say to, you know, the, there's a, a trend in the British tabloid pe- press of, oh, it's going to do them more harm than us. I- is that a way to make friends or how would, you, how would you explain that to somebody in Ireland?
2: You know, if I was talking to one of these guys in a creamery, mm-hmm. I would say, look, I understand that this this has a huge impact on what you're doing but it's not the UK alone that is, is being intransigent here. The EU and the UK could have sat down in good faith and organised a withdrawal agreement that worked, that didn't split up the United Kingdom. We could have had a trade agreement already ready to go. Mm-hmm. Neither side has done this because... Well, well actually, we did. May the the, the EU, over a course of two rest. years...
1: Hold on, hold on. The EU, over a course of two years, negotiated and agreed an agreement.
2: Uh, The EU didn't negotiate in good faith. They imposed standards. We will not talk about trade until we've agreed this area, this area, and this area. We will not talk about anything about a future relationship. We will not put anything into law about a future relationship. We'll do that in a non-binding political declaration that's about as much use as a chocolate fire guard. They haven't negotiated in good faith.
1: What could they have done differently?
2: They could have actually engaged and said, yes, the United Kingdom is leaving. Yes, we want to maintain a special friendship with the United Kingdom. Let's sit down, let's actually work out a trade agreement that works. Let's sit down and work out a a withdrawal agreement that works and is not being punitive to the
1: United Kingdom for daring to leave the European Club. Harry Todd, Senior Research Executive with Get Britain Out. Thank you very much for talking to me. No problem.
0: Make your view heard. Dial 0766035060 and leave a contribution for the show. You can find tips on how to record a good contribution and other ways to contact the podcast at here's slash call
1: I fact-checked one of the things that Harry said in the interview there. He said that the EU required member states to maintain a VAT rate of a minimum of 17%. In fact, the UK VAT rate is 20%, much higher than the minimum standard set by the EU, which is in fact 15%. It's the UK government that chooses to set it at a higher rate. But that's the minimum standard rate. EU rules also allow member state governments to set lower rates for specific items, as low as 5%, and that female hygiene products can be included in this much reduced rate, and there's a specific proposal in the works to set this to zero. I'd like to do more podcasts like this, and if you'd like to hear them, I could devote more time if I got them sponsored. I have a page on Patreon that allows ordinary listeners to donate a dollar or two per podcast or per month, whatever you want. So if you think it's valuable, please do that and share the podcast to your friends so they can do the same. Go to the website for sources and references from the show. And while you're there, you can like the show on Facebook, follow at Here's How Podcast on Twitter, and follow Get Britain Out at Get Britain Out. And get in touch with me if you can suggest a guest or a topic for a future show. Also, you can find out how to subscribe to the podcast for free on your computer, on your phone, or by email. All of that, including my Patreon link, are at www.here'show.ie. The Here's How podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.